The scripture reading today is from Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime, You received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Good morning, everyone. I'm Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. Welcome to our new vibe, courtesy of Core, who was not only our MC this week, uh, but also came in earlier this week to help with lighting. Thank you to Core and to the uh, so many people who put in effort week after week to make this service run and to help this church stay afloat. If you feel like you have a gift that you want to offer to this community, please don't hesitate to reach out to me or to Cameron. We are always looking to put people's gifts to work into this community, but we don't know what's out there unless you tell us. So thank you to CORE for letting us know that you had a, a specialty in theater lighting in college and for putting that skill and gift uh, to the work of God. God and to the blessing of this community. I am also so excited this morning to um, kick off our new sermon series, Upside Down. The Upside Down, um, we are going to get into some Stranger Things references today, but it's a broadly speaking sermon on the parables. Parables, uh, if you aren't familiar, are are just, it's just a fancy word for a type of story that's intended to induce a a kind of creative thinking, to give you a different kind of perspective on something. And it's really, really uh, a central tool of Jesus's teachings. Depending on which stories you include and which stories you say, um, you know, make make the cut as parables. Jesus taught um, between 40 and 50 parables that got recorded in the Gospels. And there are some people who would say that there are over 200 parables in all of Scripture. Storytelling is a way of making meaning, and actually it's a huge part of our faith. And as we are transitioning from our series, Hate Mail, which if you missed any of those and want to go back, they're all on our Facebook page, on our YouTube channel, and the sermons are in our podcast. But 
In our hate mail series, we were doing a lot of deconstruction, a lot of examining the assumptions of the world we're in as they were spewed at us in the form of hate mail, and kind of breaking those down, asking, where do these assumptions come from? Are they really built on scripture and love and the teachings of Jesus? And if not, what do we build in their place? This series is not going to begin with the assumptions of the world, but with the teachings of Jesus. How did Jesus describe this kingdom we can't shut up about? How did Jesus describe what it meant to be along the way with him? This way towards a different kind of being, a different kind of community that he always called kingdom, which is kind of a, it's an undermining of the term kingdom in our own world. There are many people who will, for instance, alter that word a bit, call it the kingdom, uh, kin, K-I-N, as in the Uh, the union of family, where we are all chosen family to one another, in a way to contrast that with the kingdoms of this world. And that can be a really helpful reframing, because when Jesus talked about kingdom, he was doing so to directly undermine the kingdoms, the powers, the principalities, and empires of his day. He was basically saying, I've got an empire for you, and it looks a hell of a lot different than Rome. So what did that kingdom look like to Jesus? Turns out he couldn't really just describe it straight away in ways that we would understand. And so he told story after story after story to churn our imagination, to get us to feel the kingdom, to creatively participate in imagining the kingdom. This is the way we learn. And it's one of the things I love about God and God's creativity, that the scriptures are not uh, either dead ancient stories or some sort of straightforward manual telling us right from wrong and ABC. They're an invitation into reflection, into imagination and creativity. They're stories that are a jumping off point for understanding, not the end arrival that you can memorize and say, I got it. There is a lot of potential in our scriptures. It's one of the reasons that we do so much Lectio Divina, that is divine reading or basically meditation on scripture in our small group Bible studies on Wednesday nights. And if you haven't tried out Echo yet, this might be a great time to jump in, even just for this series, to really meditate on these parables as we go through week by week and just sit with them. Let God's word spark a new creative imagination in us. These stories were never meant to be taken literally. This is true across most of the Bible, but it is explicitly true of the parables. In fact, one of my favorite quotes from uh, a treasured Jesus scholar and biblical scholar uh, goes something like this. My point, once again, is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically but that they told them symbolically, and we are now dumb enough to take them literally. Thank you, John Dominic Crossan, for that gem. I love that scholar, and I love that sentiment, that it's not that we have evolved into seeing things metaphorically. It's actually that these stories were always meant to spark creative imagination and dialogue to give us a window into a feeling, an idea, a future that God had for us that wasn't so clear as to be A plus B equals C, but was actually a creative project for us all. And that when we are 
entering into them, the best way to honor them is to think creatively and openly, to discern what it sparks in us and what God is teaching us in this particular moment through that imaginative exercise. Storytelling is the way, is the way that we learn truth. And God knows that and gave us the Bible for that purpose. And storytelling in parables in particular invites you into a story from a variety of perspectives. There are often multiple characters in these parables. And tradition and habit and ego and hubris means that we often imagine ourselves exclusively in one perspective in these stories. But every parable has more than enough information in it for a multitude of interpretations that we should be imagining ourselves from every possible perspective. If there is any one person who tells you, oh, I know the meaning of this parable, they have missed the point. Parables have a multitude of meanings. And so the real thoughtful, faithful, um, and honoring way to approach these parts of scripture and all parts, I would argue, is to really open yourself to what God has to offer you right now. It's helpful to learn the context. It's helpful to know where it comes from. But to say, God, what is this story teaching me right here, right now? And not to have so much ego to assume that that's what God meant for all people in all times. But also not to be so rigid as to say that your own interpretation and meaning isn't powerful and valid and leading you towards the truth of God. So as we discern these parables, I'm going to do my best to suggest a multitude of meanings. And each of these stories and interpretations of these stories is an opportunity to know your God better at a personal level and also to imagine this kingdom, this different kind of world. Because when we can only imagine the world that we are in, we are stuck in the systems of power and oppression and evil that we are born into. But when we follow Jesus along the way, we have one foot in the world as it is and one foot in the kingdom to come. We have the breadth of imagination to be with God in these stories, to be with one another, bringing them into being by living out the truth that God offers us new with, with each telling. So today... I'm going to begin with a modern parable, not from the Bible. This is the parable of the stranger things. Since parables are just stories that expand imagination and creative tools, I'll start with one that we perhaps know. There are four middle schoolers who love Dungeons and Dragons. And one of them suddenly goes missing, Will. These remaining friends, the three friends who love him, set out then on a quest across a whole season of this television show, Stranger Things. And they are trying to find out what happened to Will. They know that he's hurting. They know he's in pain. They know that he is in another dimension. And as they learn more and more about this other dimension, they start to call it the upside down. A lot of things appear to be the same, almost identical. The geography is the same, the buildings are the same. Even like cars and bicycles are in the same places. And yet, they're broken down. They're covered in moss and mildew. Everything's a little twisted, a little wrong. But it's just a flip side of the world that they know. 
And in this upside down, in this wrong place where everything is the same and yet completely different, fungus and other biology feeds off of that decay of the things that are alive and well in the real world. Creatures and predators that find anything alive will feed off of them until they are reduced to this, this place of decay and rot. One of the creators of this series said that they sought to create an image of a world that was basically dead. We are living in the upside down. Or perhaps I'll put it in the way that Jesus might have when teaching about the kingdom in parable form. There once was a boy who was lost. He was cold and alone, pursued daily by demons. The effort to stay alive in this hostile and lonely environment troubled his mind until he couldn't remember whether his true home and family and friends were real or just fantasy. There were also three other boys who loved and remembered the lost boy. They left their own homes and families, the joy of their games and the sunlight of their own world to travel into the upside down to find the lost one. Now this is an incomplete parable telling to be sure. It's a very rich universe. You could tell another parable, uh, perhaps centering on 11 as a messianic figure, the girl who is from the true world but has powers to control and contain the upside down to rescue others. Storytelling is like that. We can look at things from a thousand different angles to find truth. But for today, I want to highlight that we are living in the upside down, that everything we experience is a shadow of its true self, or more to the point, it is its true self but broken down, covered with rot. We were meant to drink the waters of life. We drink water tinged with lead and chemicals. We were meant to labor with joy and create for and with one another. But our labor is extracted for profit and the few benefit over the many who toil. We were meant to share power as a collective to care for one another. And now we're entering a presidential election, which is like choosing whether to vote for the Demogorgons or the Mind Flayer. We are in the upside down. This is not how it is supposed to be. It's kind of like it's how, supposed, how it's supposed to be. It's almost how it's supposed to be, but everything seems to have been forgotten and untended to. Things have preyed upon the beauty and goodness of this world. We live in fear all the time. And those fears that, that drive us, they keep us in hiding, keep us locked in this upside down. And that's not to say that there is not beauty and value in this world. It is only to say that this world is suffering, that our goodness has been damaged, this earth has fallen, and that we are not truly from the upside down. We are citizens of heaven. This is something we talked about in our last series, that our loyalties are not to the upside down, are not to this country, are not even to this earth, but to the kingdom, the thing that is already here in us and that is coming. We are resident aliens, the scriptures say. Aliens in the sense of the word um, 
of foreigners or um, immigrants. We are folks who have a green card in this world, but we come from another place. And we are not called to flee or abandon this world. We are not called to wait for its death and escape raptured up to heaven. But we are here to bring the kingdom to this earth, to heal, to cure the upside down until it reflects its true nature, to restore it to its wholeness. It is difficult to imagine the world as it ought to be. Think about the upside down. And think, if you had been stuck there, could you imagine the world as it could be? I'd like to show you two pictures. First is of the arcade. Now, this arcade is a place where these boys would play. They got to know each other. They loved one another. They planned their futures there. It was a place they called home. But in the upside down, it looked like this. It's covered in rot. What was once homey and lovely has become frightening and cruel. Now imagine for a moment that you had been in the upside down so long that you forgot what the arcade really looked like. This is the situation we are all in. We are citizens of that true arcade. And yet the one we know, the only one we know, is the one from the upside down. And we have to navigate the pain and rot of it every day. Parables are part of how we find our way back to that true arcade. That's how we find our pictures, our images, our hopes, our faith in the way things ought to be. And that is both about transforming that in, in our earthly life here and trusting in an eternity where all will be made well. But that world, which is a place of death, that world is the one that we know better. And this is why I think Jesus was always talking about eternal life. This is why we call Zao, Zao, which means literally to be among the living. Because we are trying to find life. We are trying to find the true world here and now and forever. And when we make choices into life, when we defy the upside down and the mechanisms of death, we can glimpse the world as it ought to be, even if only for a moment. We can live in the world as it ought to be, even for brief moments. But that kingdom, the, the true world, it's contained within the love we have for one another, within the choices we make towards liberation and freedom. We can live in the kingdom so long as we can find our way through the upside down and remember where our true citizenship lies. Jesus told these kinds of stories to help orient us. Now, this story that I've told you is true. I have told you a true story. Does that mean that we know of another dimension with demogorgons? Does that mean that we are trying to find a portal to God's kingdom? No. We have the capacity to take these stories and discern the truth in them without being so foolish 
as to take them literally. And so I'd like to introduce you, or perhaps reintroduce you, to one of the parables Jesus told to help orient us, to help us understand how different the kingdom is from the upside down that we're all living in. We refer to it sometimes as the story of the rich man and Lazarus. As you heard in our scripture text today, Jesus told a story. There was a rich man. The rich man wore purple. We know that that means that he was really rich because back in the day, purple was a really expensive dye. He had fine linens. Now, in Jesus' day, priests had fine linens, but they were using them for the glory of God. This rich man is using them for his own glory and pleasure. And we know that he had these lavish meals. This rich man has ostentatious wealth. And as A.J. Levine writes in her book about parables, Short Stories by Jesus, in Jesus' teachings, we see a pattern that wealth is a snare. Wealth is a trap. Wealth is a really difficult thing to escape on the way. And trying to get into the kingdom can really be thrown off quickly by wealth. So we know that there's this rich man, this wealthy man, whose wealth is visible, who he is using his riches for his own benefit. We also, in this story, have Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is a poor man. He's a very poor man. Lazarus is the poorest possible man. He is lying at the gate of the rich man's home. And he longs for the scraps from the table. But instead of eating the scraps like a dog, the dogs eat him. They lick his wounds because he is ill. So you have this wild juxtaposition the rich man, and Lazarus. In the social structures of Jesus' day and ours, there are a lot of assumptions about who is righteous and who is not. Just as now, in Jesus' day, there was often a presumption that if someone was rich, it was because they were doing things right. It was because they were hardworking. It was because they had been blessed by God. And if someone was poor, the inverse was true. They must have made some really bad decisions. They must have done some pretty terrible things. Now, in Jesus' day, it was a little bit more mystical. It was more God is directly um, rewarding or punishing you. But it's not that different from today, where we see somebody and our culture immediately judges them, judges their character, their, their morality, their choices, their intelligence, based on their social status especially when it comes to the very wealthy and the very, very poor. And so Jesus' hearers would have been thrown off a little bit by the way this story plays out. Because assuming that the rich man has done everything right, he should be rewarded in the afterlife. And assuming that, the, that Lazarus has been sinful, he should be punished. And yet, Jesus tells us something totally different, that indicates that the way that we assume things is pretty upside down. He tells the story, he goes on, and he says, once they have died, that Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man goes down to Hades. 
Now, this is another indication that the mythology surrounding the afterlife was completely different in Jesus's time than in ours. So in addition to that caveat I made earlier, where I said we're not taking this literally and we're not taking this as like uh, literal information on what happens when we die. This is a story inviting imagination. We also need that historical context that says that the collective imagination about death at the time involved um, Greek mythology, Hades, uh, is, is the term that we're using, which had evolved from a Hebrew understanding of a place called Sheol, the place of the dead. And then Abraham's bosom, which is actually an imagery of uh, really kingdom in that literal sense of family. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, that they all as descendants could claim that they were of the lineage of Abraham. And so Lazarus, who has been theoretically abandoned, because he's not being taken care of by family here on this earth, goes to his holy family to be held by his, his holy father, Abraham, held in his, at his breast and treasured. And so we see that the way this plays out after they die is that the rich man is isolated in Hades, the place of the dead. He is, he is experiencing death and, and pain and separation. And far off in the distance, he sees Lazarus, who has been embraced by the tradition, by the lineage, by Abraham, and cared for. And the rich man calls out to Abraham, asking, can I get a little help here? Would you, would you have Lazarus just help me? Just, I'm so thirsty, just a drop of water. And the answer is no, there is a chasm here. You are in the place of death. Not going to happen. So the rich man, taking stock, accepting his own fate, thinks of his brothers, thinks that his brothers are going to suffer the same fate that he has, and asks, will you please send, send word to them, tell them, so that they don't end up here like me. And the answer he gets is, they have the prophets, and Moses, which is to say, I've been sending people. They haven't been listening. You didn't listen. And the rich man says, well, surely if you sent Lazarus, they would listen to a man who had been raised from the dead. <laughs> no. They didn't listen to the prophets. They won't listen to the one who was raised from the dead. Now, there are so many layers to this story, y'all. And that is the most exciting part for me because there are a thousand things we could learn from this about what the kingdom is, about <clears throat> how we get a distorted understanding of the world in our upside down, about the great reversal of things, that the way things are as we understand them here in the upside down are not only completely different in the kingdom, but sometimes opposite. Up is down, left is right, rich is poor, poor is rich. We have to understand that the, the way things are in the upside down, that's not something we're going to like quietly reform our way out of. That's not something we're going to just sort of inch in a gradual evolutionary direction until things are great again. again. That's something that needs to be overturned. It's something that needs to be completely undone. The upside down is not livable. And if we want eternal life, we need a different kind of way. 
And actually, we are like the rich man when we give over to the ways of the world that we're in, the upside down, and we find ourselves in a kind of death, whether that is literal or not. So I want to propose one possible understanding of this parable. I believe that it is possible that Jesus is giving us a picture of the difference between the upside down and the kingdom. That the upside down we live in has the rich man who has all of the riches and trappings of this world at his disposal. That, that he feels and is rewarded by this world as though he's doing everything right. But that's what we perceive in the upside down. And what's actually going on for him is that he is locked away in the wealth and greed and hoarding of his own life. That he is isolated. That he can't reach out to Abraham or to Lazarus. But he is dead inside. And conversely, Lazarus, who we know nothing about except that he gets a name. He is known. He is claimed. Though he is abandoned in this upside-down world, though he is left at the gate for people to walk by or walk over, though the dogs are licking at his wounds, he is held so dear by Abraham, by the cloud of witnesses, by those who have gone before. He knows the love of God and the love of family. We are tempted. We are tempted in this reading to always think of ourselves as Lazarus. And you know what? There are times that we should. We should imagine ourselves at every aspect of this. What do we have to learn from imagining ourselves as Lazarus in this passage? But we are also called to reflect as the rich man what are the ways that we have let the, under, the upside down sell us a lie? What are the ways that we have bought into the logic of hoarding and isolation, of greed and wealth, of satiating our earthly appetites at the expense of true life that calls us out, out of our wealth or security, whatever it may be? out of the privileges that we have and into risk and relationship and love and openness and vulnerability? What are the ways that we have used everything at our disposal to guard against vulnerability? Lazarus has nothing to guard him against vulnerability. Everything he has has been laid bare. And though that is cruel and horrible, and that is the way of the upside down because he has been abandoned, it also affords him the ability to be laid bare before God. Whereas the rich man has used every tool at his disposal to put up walls, to choose self-preservation over generosity and vulnerability and openness of spirit. How are you like the rich man? The parables ask us to think through each of these perspectives, to know that we have Lazarus in us and we have the rich man. 
We wish someone had warned us. We wish somebody had told us. Now that little bit at the end, that sassy bit about, well, I sent you the prophets and I sent you Moses, and no, you're not going to listen to Lazarus raised from the dead. That's another understanding that even though we hear these passages, not all are ready to receive them. Not even when someone raises from the dead. Not even when Jesus, Son of God, comes to earth to speak them to us in love. But that's, that's an explanation for why we can't all get on the same page. It's not a condemnation. And it's not, uh, it's not chastising you that you can't understand this. It's just telling you, yes, you may have heard this before. Yes, others may have heard this. Others may claim Jesus. Others may tell you this parable, but they may not get it. They may still be dead inside. But in this moment, that parable isn't for them. It's for you. What do you have to learn from the rich man and from Lazarus? How can this story orient you in your place here in the upside down, help you to remember who God is and who you are and what it means to find eternal life in kin and love and in, and in the embrace of those who have come before you? How can we reach out before we become so isolated that it feels like there is a chasm between us and the world that cannot be crossed? We know that while Lazarus may not be able to cross that chasm, Jesus can and did and does every moment of every day. And so though the rich man cries out to Lazarus and realizes it's too late for him, Jesus after telling this parable, dies on the cross and goes to the place of the dead, opens the place and invites all into freedom. Because we know that in Jesus, neither life nor death, nor the riches of this world, nor the sores and pains and abandonments of this world can keep us from the love of God. So Jesus will come. Jesus is there. And no matter how dead inside you feel, life is right there with you, calling your name and saying, I love you. Let's open up and get on with living. Let's find the eternal life that I have in store for you. The upside down is not all there is. Imagine with me what things really could be. I'm excited to journey with you over the next few weeks into these stories, to open our hearts to what God has to reveal to us. Because maybe we'll get a glimpse not only of what's to come one day, but what God has already gotten at work in our hearts, in our lives, and in our world. The kingdom that is coming and already right here for us. Will you pray with me? God of blessing, God of abundance, God of creative imagination, open our hearts, open our minds to perceive the world that is not before us, but is our true home. God, help us to take in these stories, these parables with new hearts, 
with new imaginations, that we may catch a glimpse of who you are in your full glory and who we are as your children. You are good. We place our trust in you to bring us into truth. In your name we pray. Amen.